Welcome to the Double Helix History Podcast. Today we're going to talk about Australia. Uh, we spent three months in Australia this summer um, and we talked with lots of family historians, we talked with lots of scholars, uh, we talked with lots of people generally. Uh, and it was a fascinating time to be in that country. It was fascinating to talk to people about this stuff and to find out quite how different they thought they were and quite how different they are from scholarship and family history elsewhere, but also the kind of similarities and the things that we could see that we could pull out. We were very warmly uh, welcomed in Australia, and in fact, we like uh, to pay tribute to the organisations that helped us when we were there. They were so supportive and so generous. Um, this is particularly the Heraldry and, Ge and Genealogy Society of Canberra, the Genealogical Society of Victoria in Melbourne, um, and the Society of Australian Genealogists, uh, who are based in Sydney. Uh, and without their help, we wouldn't have been able to do our research. And they were incredibly lovely, uh, you know, really opened up so many great things for us. Uh, they were so generous with their time and their expertise, and we'd really like to thank them very much. But broadly, being in Australia was very welcoming. We got very much a kind of sense of openness, uh, people very happy to talk about things, very, very comfortable talking about stuff, wasn't it? And it was a lot of fun, that, wasn't it? We, mm -hmm. really, we really enjoyed it. You were on the telly. I was on the telly, I was on TV, yeah. I was on a, a programme about uh, the revelation uh, that, that might attend on uh, genetic genealogy and, and DNA investigation. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, today's uh, podcast is more uh, nitty-gritty and um, seedy than last time. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about uh, family drama, we're going to talk about kinship, we're going to talk about ethics, we're going to talk about a duty that we might have to our, to our families of um, keeping information uh, or, or making sure they're well uh, informed about what might be the consequence of uh, DNA testing uh, be. Um, we did uh, sort of various events in Australia, some focus groups, some discussions, we did some symposia, we did some public events, we did some academic events. It was pretty, uh, it was pretty full on time. Um, but largely I think what we found was that um, uh, most people who do family history in Australia are comfortable with the fact that someone in their background is a bigamist. Is that not? I mean, that pretty much that's what we found. That I, I haven't used the word big anymore than you know twice in my life, I think. And then in Australia, suddenly it was you know every two minutes. So what do you think that was? Well, I, I think a couple of people mentioned it that Australia being sort of founded on large numbers of people be either being sent away or running away mm. from other places, they often had things to run away from. Well, yeah, and I wonder whether <laughs> there's this kind of sort of uh, acceptance of that, people are very comfortable with that, and uh, almost kind of um, uh, wearing it as a kind of badge of honour, you know, this kind of like crazy uh, understanding of your past where obviously it's all a bit chaotic and <laughs> not quite legal. Uh, do you think so? Or? Yeah, I think um, perhaps there's a generational thing in that maybe 50 odd years ago or longer, people may have been a bit ashamed about the shadier characters and I don't know, convicts or bigamists mm -hmm. or anything like that. Whereas maybe perhaps part of Australia as a nation maturing into itself and people becoming more relaxed and open about their history, it's actually something now that's celebrated. Well, certainly that's what people seem to say, wasn't it? That, that, that it was a generational shift and that previous generations have been concerned about uh, in about legitimacy and about kind of ignoring those black sheep, uh, whereas people seem to be very keen on their black sheep uh, <laughs> and very happy about that. Uh, and it made me, it really made me think about uh, two things. One is what we, we're going to talk about today, which is about the ethics of this. So when you find this stuff out, is it okay to then share it with your uh, with your family? Um, but also, yeah, about about how distance means that it's kind of okay. 
if you met someone who was a beginner now, you'd be you know, maybe not quite as pleased <laughs> as, as you might be. But actually, you know, so in 50, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, it's kind of all right. You know? mm-hmm. It's um, almost as if, if you knew the person or if maybe someone who's still alive knew the person closely, it's painful. Mm. If it's two or three generations back, it's just interesting. But it's also follow. still part of you somehow, right? So Because it's like part of your relation. So I, I think it's very strange. And also there's a continuum as well, right? Because... Um, yeah, there are certain crimes that are okay and certain crimes that aren't okay, right? And I think that, you know, uh, particularly in Australia's history, there's, there's been quite a lot of um, a participation in all kinds of policy and action that people wouldn't necessarily be as comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what struck me talking to our family historians in Australia was that they did seem to be happy with that kind of dark history as well. They were, there was a, they were facing up to a certain type of... Um, uh, a way of thinking about their nation's past. I thought it was quite, that was quite astonishing, actually. Mm-hmm. The way you can sort of contextualise it in, mm-hmm. well, you know, it was, it was a thing that happened at the time. It was based on the social mores of mm-hmm. time, and you know, we're not necessarily proud of it, but we can, you know, we can only sort of understand it. And I guess that because the social history aspect of family history, that's going to always come up, isn't it? It's cause you're always going to be thinking about the individual and their relationship to wider social movement or social um, context and so you can you can both be empathic and and also uh, judgmental at the same time <laughs> because you can kind of say well i can see where this has come from but yeah. that's not us you know mm-hmm. and there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a relativism there which i think is quite um quite refreshing actually mm-hmm. and and definitely a recognition that you know the way in which society and culture has changed things that might have Something like illegitimacy that mm. might have been, you know, a, hor- a terrible thing to mm. have to uh, tell people about is actually no one would really bat an eyelid mm. about now. So Absolutely. You can see people in a different light. Although what's interesting is that the genetics can force these conversations in a way that that, that people weren't necessarily as, uh, as as comfortable with. In as much as we met lots of people, didn't we, who who sort of said, "Well, it's fine when it's on paper." It's fine when I kind of kind of make a, an assertion about something because I've done some detective work. But discovering something through your DNA test, it's quite blunt, isn't it? It's quite, can be quite, there were quite a few people who looked like they needed a bit more time to deal with <laughs> the revelation that had there come that they weren't necessarily expecting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess particularly if you're, if it's something where you're looking for a particular archive, you might often have a bit of a hunch that there's something not quite right here mm. already or else you wouldn't be doing what you were doing. But yeah, the DNA of being, being scientific, being objective, is just brings things up without any sort of preparation necessarily. And <laughs> I was just thinking the other thing is that a lot of people came in the early days came to Australia with fairly shady backgrounds with mm. the convicts. So therefore stories about families weren't shared as much down the generations because there was sometimes a lot of shame with the convicts. Mm-hmm. Yes, they came here to make a new start, and here we are digging it all up again That's exactly. and, and exposing it. It's not just <laughs> not just convicts, but there were lots of other reasons that people came out to start again, mm-hmm. leave behind what they didn't well, want. Sort of the opposite experience in my family, and that I grew up with loads and loads of stories of people who were born in the seventeen eighties and stuff. You know, like people I've never met, and my grandmother had never met. So I'm wondering whether it's a difference um, about you know. A, about the kind of families or mm. the kinds of secrets or there's yeah. a, a, definitely a kind of um embracing of that you were talking about convicts and shadiness everyone i've spoken to here pretty much has been very comfortable with 
their family being migrants um, mm. and their families often having Criminals. Criminals. Well, convicts are called Australian royalty now. We're talking now. I've used the word bigamy more in the last two months than I have ever ever used Mm. it. That's a very We're very comfortable with it now. But I can tell you that when I was doing my husband's family, his grandmother, Mm. so we're going back, you know, quite a few years, she would take me back as far as she knew, and I knew she knew, knew more, Mm. So it didn't take me long to work out there was a convict there. Mm. But she wasn't ever going to talk about it or admit to it. Yeah. And England's so the only place I've met people who were ashamed to have illegitimate ancestors. Mm-hmm. I've met English people, oh, yeah, totally. but, but not in Australia. Like all of us, I would think, have got illegitimate ancestors mm. at some point. Oh. Yeah, that's what I think it's really interesting. It's that feeling of connection and belonging. Yeah, and, and I think that that's far more in the, in the, the colonial countries, if you like, rather than the home countries where the people have where we're sort of looking to try to connect to something that goes back more than 200 years. Mm-hmm. And it's also you've got multiple sources, because most yeah. people in Australia have got, you know, they're not just from southern England or from Ukraine or from Scotland or Germany. They've got a good sort of 57 mixture, varieties. you know, <laughs> the Heinz 57 varieties sort of yeah. statement, you know, and it's trying to understand very much wider connections than, okay, I had family from Kent or I had family from Dublin or from wherever. It's not just one place. It's trying to understand how all these different routes go back into a multi sort of areas. And you, you, I think you appreciate it differently than somebody whose who's sort of history is more centred in one place mm. because they ha- they're not a migrant population. Because I mean, my Lancashire family that lived in Preston, you know, as far as they went for holidays was Blackpool. Mm. Um, you know, so they only went down the road, sort of thing, with the exception of the one time they came out to Australia and decided it was too hot and went home again. But um, I just think that that's a very different, um, a different attitude to... So our three contributors today are very, very interesting scholars. They've come from very different perspectives, very different intellectual and disciplinary backgrounds. Tanya Evans is an expert in family history and social history from Macquarie University in Sydney. She spoke at the State Library of New South Wales about issues to do with family history and research. And what um, I have increasingly been interested in is focusing upon the ways in which family history is producing um, the kind of knowledge around empathy, um, education and active citizenship. So I've been looking at people's emotional responses um, to their family history research and what impact it has had on them as individuals and how it disrupts their understanding of the family um, but also the nation in the process of undertaking their research. But I'm also really interested in how it's producing active citizens. Um, And this is a kind of form of citizenship um, that is focused upon participatory democracy and engagement with local and community organisations as well as other forms of of political engagement as well. So I want to chart the ways in which family historians are committed to teamwork and to voluntary work on lots of different levels, on the familial, local, community, national and international level. Um, And, you know, this kind of parallels quite a lot of the research that other scholars are undertaking in other national contexts. I'm thinking here of Henriette uh, Rhode Cunliffe, who's working in Copenhagen, on ways in which family historians are kind of contributing to participatory heritage and working with archives and libraries in order to produce um, uh, uh, history together. 
And here I am, again, in the State Library. I spend a lot of my time here in the State Library of New South Wales, um, pictured next door uh, with Maria Linders, who, was a who is a member of uh, COASIC, an Italian-Australian um, uh, family historical organisation and, and else. And here I want to, to look at the ways in which you know, different um, individuals um, can communicate their knowledge about the past and what impact that then has on them with their local and community groups. And here we're back with Carol Turner. You know, she loves making contact with genealogists. She's a member, like I'm sure lots of you are, of, of several different Facebook groups. She has a blog. Do, do many of you have blogs here, family historians? Yep, there I can see a, a few hands there. You know, so you're, you're engaging with others uh, around family history digitally. You're often making contact with kind of seventh cousins removed who live in Texas. You know, you're sometimes visiting their houses and producing this kind of geneal genealogical tourism that is uh, completely fascinating. You know, Carol's also kind of going out doing lots of transcribing for people who, who need their help, you know, uh, taking photos of, of graves and then sharing that information online. And I think that kind of collaboration uh, requires further analysis. And that's partly because I think it has a huge impact not just on individuals as researchers, but also upon uh, communities more broadly. And for Carol, you know, she's. Um, she, she talks about how family history has transformed her as an individual. Um, she is kind of, she, she calls herself a quiet feminist, strongly believes in racial equality, um, and you know, like Emma has shown, has, 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 has discovered the ways in which, you know, looking at the desperate lives of people in the past, how that makes her rethink the lives of kind of people who are poor in the present. And small acts of kindness have become her oeuvre. Um, and this is really important because this sort of the kind of emotional engagement with the past, this kind of transformative impact of historical learning and research is having an enormous impact on public memory making. Um, and this is linked to some of Jerome's work upon historical, on historical enfranchisement and Anna Clark's work. Um, uh, Jerome met Anna Clark yesterday at UTS at a, at a masterclass we were doing on public history. Again, about how um, you know, the ways in which ordinary people are engaging with historical practice and, you know, and, and historical subjectivity in that process. And I think family history is important because it is allowing individuals to become much more active and engaged citizens across the globe. Um, and I think that's important in today's age. You know, yesterday Jerome was talking about um, public history and Trump and Brexit. Uh, and actually, it's really important that we look in the positive ways in which kind of this broader project of history making and production um, can reshape our understanding of the community and what that might mean for all of our futures. Next up, we're gonna hear from Ashley Barnwell, who works at the University of Melbourne. She's a sociologist and she'll be talking with Jerome about real life revelations, secrets, truths and ethics and the way in which this impacts on families and family stories. And this interview comes straight from the University of Melbourne's premier Irish bar. Well, I actually got into it in social theory from coming from a, th from a theoretical perspective. So I was really interested in collective authorship. Like, so how is it that we tell stories, but they affect all of us? So it's like you, I tell my own life narrative, but it's completely implicated in other people's lives. And what's the ethics of that? So I was really interested beyond that a bit in truth telling. 
yeah. you know, and evidence of those kinds of things. And I was working and writing, like my PhD was in social theory and the history of theories of emotion. And I thought, I need to get a job. <laughs> I've got to be able to <laughs> apply this to something or think through it in a way that I can communicate this and yeah, yeah. those kinds of things. So I became really interested in the family of that site for collective storytelling and the ethics and politics around that. Like even just thinking about my own brother, like that we would look at a family photograph and I'd be like, oh yeah, I remember that. This is when this and this happened to be looking at me like, oh, that's not... You know, so there's all of this stuff around memory and shared stories. And, and have you come across... It's interesting you say that because we've... It, when we've, we've spoken with family historians, there's, there's often been a kind of concern about truth-telling mm. or, or the consequences of finding, quotes truth. Uh, yeah. For instance, this morning we were talking with someone who uncovered a whole can of worms when she did some DNA work. Um, is, is it... How do you find people deal with that kind of responsibility? I think in all different ways. And that's, I think that's why it's quite interesting because you have this... Because obviously I'm a social scientist, so I'm interested in kind of thing between the macro and the micro and I think you see it in there, like people's sensitivity towards past generations like in, in one sense they might be completely abhorred by the kinds of social stigmas that made past generations keep something a secret but they still feel like they don't want to upset grandma, so they're not going to reveal it, you know, so there's this, this complex thing of a political sense that this should be, we shouldn't keep these things secret anymore, but yet I'm going to keep reproducing this because of family sensitivity. So I think there's that idea of whether we should tell the truth or not. Like even in a, what we think is a very confessional culture, like a tell-all culture, people are still preserving all kinds of things for different reasons. But practically, how do you do? You think do you find people actually actively um, suppressing things or not telling at all? And I think they are, but I think the more interesting thing is why and how. Like, how is it that we navigate telling or not telling things and, and why? Like, what are the reasons? What are the social reasons and personal reasons and where are the connections between those? And, and I guess, is it the case, do you think, that, that every single individual instance is, is particular and so you know, everyone's negotiating, navigating their own set of ethics within their own family group and their own... I think, yeah, I think definitely that. And people feel like they're very particular. But I think, uh, you know, thinking, coming from a sociological perspective, like you see the shared or objective aspects of it as well. It's like families keep the same secrets often because we have these normative ideas of what a family should be or what a life course should be, like when you should get married and when you should fall pregnant and who you should be married to and all those kinds of things. Like that is something within a certain kind of bounded time and space shared society that people will share even though secrets are so personal and their impact is so personal what we've chosen to keep secret is a, often a very shared generational cultural kind of thing well and also presumably um, secret keeping is not anything to do with it's keeping secrets that have nothing to do with you personally on you precisely is is because you're addressing a sense of shame or a sense yeah. of anxiety, which is not your, necessarily yours. Like you're saying, like a kind of cross-generational yeah. secret keeping, where you may feel that obviously it's not. It's fine that you know grandma's sister was actually her mother or whatever, which is yeah. but that you're somehow projecting a kind of reading of that, which means that you don't want to reveal it because you feel that it might impact on them. Yeah. 
It's certainly when I've been speaking with other groups, there's been a range of, of opinion about yeah, about this, and, and oftentimes people have found information they were uncomfortable with having, mm-hmm. um, and there's a kind of ethics and that kicks in, which I don't. I guess my question is not about that particular of it, but whether that's the same as finding something out in a census data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you think it is, or is it more live somehow? But it's um, genetic, I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think yeah. it's causing a lot of problems in America. Like the, the looking at the, the Facebook pages and things mm-hmm. like this with the genetics one. But all I think all all it's done is just reveal the truth. The truth, yeah, that's which right. for many generations has been yeah. able to be kept hidden yes. because mm-hmm. access and yeah. things like that was so much yeah. easier to just mm-hmm. kind of. We've all got one of those stories in the family where there's a legitimate child or something happened or there's a convict in the family that people didn't want to admit to. There's, everybody's got one, mm. but it, once upon a time, it was very easy to just forget it and just talk it out of the family story. But now the family story comes up in all these other places like mm. DNA. So all you're doing is revealing stuff, mm. but it still brings up the same sensitivities mm. about yeah. Just and keeping you, something to yourself. And do we oh, have the right to reveal our ancestors' mm-hmm. secrets? Yes. Just because they're dead. But there's a, do you think there's a generational thing that that's Yes, sort of yeah, I definitely think it's generational. generational. Was, yeah. I've, I've, my grandmother, for example, was illegitimate, but none of her grandchildren knew about it, or even her children knew about it. Mm-hmm. That was the first one that uncovered it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all. But why don't we know? We don't know. Our generation doesn't care. And I've got a, a distant cousin. I found that her father, her grandfather, no, sorry, her father, her, fa- her grandfather was in jail early in life and she didn't know because her generation and her parents' generation just didn't talk about those things because they were shameful, you know, she said. And the other one I found <coughs> is suicide. Mm-hmm. That was never spoken about. Mm-hmm. And when you uncover, you know, three or four generations back, no one, knew, no, no one living today in the family know anything about it. Mm. Maybe that distance you're talking about means that people could move away a lot easier or had to move further away and therefore could lose contact easier mm. um, if they were trying to to move around so easier for mm. australian ancestors to kind of keep secrets yeah to just go to, a, to another state but that's yeah. like thousands of kilometers away yeah, yeah. everyone seems but to go to tasmania bad, that's why i find everyone's going to tasmania yeah. <laughs> no but you know so that's the sea coast was much more accessible you mm. know where there were lots mm. of ships you know in the early mm. days you know mm. so Around the coast, people could move fairly, you know, fairly readily. Yeah. Even though the yeah. Roaring Forties would have been, oh, you know, would have got seasick in those. But uh, uh, you know, that's uh, you know that that Southern Ocean, the yeah. Southern Oceans. That's how Australia was first discovered, uh, you know, by Europeans was being blown, blown across. I think we also end up with different couple combinations because. In England, you tended to marry somebody who lived mm. near you, whereas, you know, one side of the family, I've got someone from Scotland married someone from Yorkshire in Tasmania, and, mm. and, and you get more of a mix-up, especially with the, with the immigration since the Second World War, uh, although that would be the same as England, actually, because you've had the same. But before that, um, we probably got more diverse couples yeah. than... than mm. In a lot of port cities in England, you've got a lot of... Our final contributor 
to this section is Indira Chowdhury, who teaches in Bangalore. Indira is a world-famous uh, expert on oral history, particularly. Um, and here she is speaking at the State Library in New South Wales about ideas of orality and memory. This is a family album of my aunt, my father's sister, which I found, uh, I found it a while ago and I was shocked by this page looking at it recently. At the center, she has her grandparents who did not believe uh, what became East Pakistan. But look what she has around, and that is interesting. Thank you. 
But I'm struck by the ways in which, you know, there were these attempts in this industrial town to recreate some kind of a rural life. Um, we've heard Ashley and Indira talking about uh, memory and family history and oral testimony, thinking about DNA as a historical source then. How is that troubling those kind of uh, traditional ways of, of passing on history or memory? Well, I think one of the values of thinking about different types of memory is that it demonstrates to us that DNA is just another one of the ways in which we remember, and those are never necessarily innate. Uh, different cultures do different things. There's no kind of normative way of remembering or normative way of, of collecting information. Uh, which always reminds us that we need to look at why we do certain things, what our decisions are about certain things. And my interest in DNA at the minute is how it's becoming normative and how it's becoming normalised um, without a recognition <laughs> of, that, of that argument. Uh, we need to be kind of self-aware about what we're doing with it before it kind of accretes into a, into a practice that we haven't really thought about too much. Um, but it does change memory, I think. I think it definitely shifts uh, the way we might think about the past in two ways. One, it very very clearly can have the, the power to change what you might think about your own past. Uh, you may have thought that your parents were X and this may change that, uh, rightly or wrongly. Um, it may introduce new aspects of your past uh, in terms of um, your background, your family, your kinship group. So there's that. Uh, the other thing that it does materially is, is, is allow us to make assertions about the past. Um, which changes the way we think about it. I think. Um, it allows us to, to say stuff about the things that happened in the past and it allows us to change, therefore, our, our view of that past. And I think so, therefore, it is, it's clearly going to affect memory. Uh, I always use this example. So I have my DNA done for genealogical purposes, but my nieces, who are two and six, will know themselves genetically. Uh, and it will be second nature to them. They'll have had their genetics looked at closely. They'll have personalised medicine. Uh, they will be comfortable about seeing themselves from the point of view of their genome in a way that I'm not. Um, not even comfortable, it will just be, that's be, that'll be how it is. So their memory that will change. <laughs> they, will memor they, will, they will think in a different way to, than I do. Uh, their, their, their concept of memory be different as a consequence. Their concepts of themselves will be different as a consequence. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that you know it, it clearly changes the way we, we conceive of um, our relation to the past and the way and the things we remember. And so. mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, both these kind of comments are about that sort of duty or no, the ethics of having knowledge about the past and the, what that means to people's lives in the present. Ah. Is it different necessarily that if you were to find out this through a, a genetic match rather than if you were to find something out through paperwork? Is there some kind? Of, is there a category difference for? Do you see what I mean? I don't know whether there is. I'm just to the thing before that you know paperwork can lie, mm. whereas in a sense DNA can't. Right. You know, so you could always say, well, you know, static or. I, I, I've been thinking about this DNA and identity mm -hmm. thing, and I've come up with this idea that, that basically identity is our cultural identity and DNA is our biological identity. Mm -hmm. And they are 
on different dimensions mm. and the fact that you now know that you're not biologically related to your parents growing up doesn't mean that you don't think of them as your parents mm. so so they intersect but they're very very different things mm. but being able to, to hold that in your head is quite a, that's quite a sophisticated thing to, i mean i think it's very definitely the case but mm. it's quite a sophisticated division to be able to make uh, between biological identity and, and cultural, I mean, I think, there's, identity. I think there's rightness in people lying sometimes about how circumstances. You know, a woman who's raped um, just says the child's mm. my husband's. You know, all mm. sorts of examples mm. where it's actually good for a mm. lie to be. They did it for the right reasons at the time. Yeah, a lot of that's being exposed. I read an article the other week by one of the American. Uh, genetic genealogist and she was basically saying how she worked through this whole family constellation and found she's saying well the, the father was either the woman's brother or her father and this is how I work through it and this mm. is what you look for and this will be it'll look like this if it was the father and it'll look like this if it was the brother and obviously they're finding enough cases yes. of things like that yes. that um that they're now sort of yes I'm not people, saying secrets are good for sure but but they've no, served the, purpose uh, culturally for the a other, long time. The other group nowadays is um, children conceived of sperm donation. Mm. I find that and very difficult. Yeah. My husband's got a girl who's a match and she sort of said, oh, well, I'm, I met my sperm donor father and he's got two kids and I met them, but I know there's another six or eight of us out there and I don't know their names, but I just know the gender and date of birth. So before I date anybody, I have to say, what's your date of birth? You know? <laughs> <laughs> And, is, that, and is that a privacy issue in Australia particularly? That's well, it was. It was at the time people donated. Mm. At the mm. time you did mm. your donation, you were guaranteed never to be outed, but mm. that's all changed. Mm. And a lot of it came from the, you know, the child mm. wanting to know. And from jigsaw, and from adoptees. Yeah, mm. adoptees. Yeah. So this brings me on to one of my questions, I guess, which is, uh, yeah. what, uh, have you discovered, found out things, tested things that you... Um, you weren't really expecting <laughs> when you are off uh, as a consequence of the DNA stuff. Are you recording? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I appreciate this gets into the slightly um, uh, complicated areas. You mean with ethnic origins or matches? Anything, really. Well, you're, you're well, I think you're I'm guessing for many of us it's helped us break through a number of brick walls. Mm. Yeah. So, and particularly if you've got any sort of adoptions in the family. So, mm. Or illegitimate. So I've been through DNA, been able to trace who her father was, mm. and she has living first cousins who we're going to meet wow. overseas. So I think, and I can see how DNA is going to help me, providing I can find the right people to test, mm. help me with some other records. So I think mm. that's one of the things that understanding each of the tests and how they can work for you is going to allow us to break through some of those brick walls. That's a lot hard for. It is. Sometimes. But Sometimes. It, seems, it seems to me there are Facebook groups where there are lots of adoptees. Mm. Or like DNA yeah. detectives. Yeah, mm. maybe it's just that one that I look at. You know, you constantly It's worth reading people. up those sorts of ones though because yes. they have some good tips about what yeah. everybody that, should be doing whether you're looking at adoptee yeah. adoptions or not. I was going to say that they're also they've got really good stories, like yes. pleasant ones, and they've got some real horror stories oh. too. Yeah. So it can open up. One of the major areas that has been where DNA sequencing had really important impact is around adoption, people who've been adopted looking for family members um, who they've never been able to trace mm. through the paper methods. And 
an interesting aspect of that is that there are people who, particularly on Facebook groups and other sort of communities online, who actually volunteer their skills that they've built up around DNA and around family history to actually help total strangers from outside the world to try and connect with uh, connect with their family members. Um, which, on the one hand, is just a, an amazing sort of voluntary way of collaborating and helping other members of the community. But there's also some people are very gung ho with that. Um, with that um, practice, and don't know if well, it's difficult a, yeah. across different acro- across different countries and different cultures, right? Because different places have different laws. Um, there's different bits of information you can get from different places. So, um, on the one hand, you can see why if this is instigated by an adoptee or an orphan or then that that's that's an astonishing thing to be able to offer them. But at the same time, we, you know, families are families are families. Human beings are human beings, and you know, if we've not if we've learned one thing in this year, <laughs> it's been that there's always going to be some kind of secret somewhere. Uh, you know, the it's the house thing about everybody lies, uh, and you know, sometimes people want their lies to stay lies. Uh, they want things to stay unknown. They want to have repressed that or to have you know kept that dark or kept that a secret and it's DNA is an interesting one for this because it has the kind of um, power of revelation and truth it's like the sword of justice you know it's kind of like very much like you know this is the kind of silver bullet this is the absolute thing and and so it it gains a kind of moral authority as a consequence you know we can do this so we should do this we can find this out, so we should, and I'm not necessarily sure it always should be. Um, but then the ethics of that are down to everyone who, who, who's involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think if you're a sperm donor or if you're someone who adopted, who, who gave up a child for adoption for various reasons, you may not want this to, to be it, it, it coming back to you uh, for a very, very good reason. If, you, if you're in a painful situation or a difficult or dangerous situation, um, this is not necessarily... A good thing to be able to find mm-hmm. yourself out. It, equally, if you're an adoptee or if you never knew your parents or if you're an orphan, obviously, I'm not going to say they shouldn't be allowed to do this. Um, but you have to take quite a lot of care. But this is where it's fa- why it's fascinating for me about history because history is not neutral, and the way you think about the past is not neutral. And um, the idea that you, we could be complacent about the past is exploded by this instantly mm-hmm. because you have to recognise family and individual emotion and, and how upsetting this stuff is um, and how people's engagement with the past is, is invariably emotional and um, and, uh, uh, and coloured by affective uh, issues. So some really interesting moral, ethical implications that we've covered today, real ties to the family stories, the family history and how genetics is impacting on that. What can we expect next time, Jerome? Well, next week we're going to talk a lot more about ethics in a much more wider sense. We're going to think about um, data and ownership. We're going to think about storage and archiving. And in particular, we're going to talk about legacy. What happens to this information um, after people have died, have passed on? Uh, what happens to all this stuff? Wh- where does it go? And, and what kind of ownership do we have over this material?